is the Electile Dysfunction Podcast with Ashton Cohen. Way more interesting than anything you're listening to on NPR. Probably less exciting than what you're watching on OnlyFans. Bruh. We're going to talk about the issues that really matter. Our country, our economy, the Fed, QE, GDP, BTC, NFTs, AOC, the CCP, Cardi B, Ow. Yeezy, Yellow Socks, Iran, Joe Biden's dementia, Come on, man. and probably sex robots. We stand for a free and open debate and exchange of ideas. And if you disagree with anything we talk about, you are a racist and no better than Hitler. What? Let's get started. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Electile Dysfunction Podcast. I'm joined today by Erica Rhodes. Erica is a teacher and congressional candidate for the 32nd District of California, which is basically in most of the San Fernando Valley. She is a Democrat looking to unseat Congressman, uh, incumbent Democrat Brad Sherman, who I actually interned for when I was in high school. Uh, that was my first bit of political experience. Uh, I have to say, not an impressive man. <laughs> uh, so I wanted to have Erica on for a few reasons. She's running in the district that I was born and raised in. Uh, I like that she's an outsider. I think we need outsiders on uh, definitely both sides of the political spectrum. Uh, she worked with Andrew Yang, who I have a lot of respect for. Uh, and she is not somebody who, I, who, like most people in Congress, is some sort of, you know, brain-dead partisan ideologue, you know. I think that uh, having these sorts of outside voices is really what we need in this country. Um, and she's one of the biggest proponents of Bitcoin of any person I've seen running for national office. Uh, and she's going to try to unseat the probably the most vocal opponents of Bitcoin and crypto innovation in the House of Representatives, Brad Sherman. Uh, so, Erica, thanks so much for being on with me. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited. Absolutely. Uh, so, just want to start off here. So, tell us why you decided to run and then if you could give us after that maybe the top three four five things that you really want to focus on so i decided to run for congress um after i was heavily entrenched in the last democratic primary and i was an andrew yang supporter and i went to iowa new hampshire nevada to support him and i just felt like the policies around campaign finance education reform financial literacy trade schools were really important and then the pandemic hit and then nobody was advocating for our young people um, and i felt that that I was, I was like this is not okay and then also i'm really much against this the lack of civil discourse in our like our government and it's preventing things from getting done and so i decided to file our campaign blew up immediately um Within the first like 72 hours, we had over $20,000. By August, we had 50. And now here we are very much positioned to win. Um, the issues that we're heavily running on is foster care reform. My district has a massive increase in homelessness. And when I was talking to people that are experiencing homelessness, there was this like connection between the foster care system and and they're why they're unhoused and so i was like how come no one in government is talking about this and so we went back and we did the research and we saw that when kids age out of the system they immediately fall into poverty and then there's like a two-week window where someone has to be able to pull themselves out of poverty and if they don't in that two-week window then it becomes chronic homelessness and so that is something that i cared deeply about I want to serve on the Education and Labor Committee in Congress to fight for financial literacy, education reform, modernizing our curriculum, 
and also the financial service um, committee, financial services committee, because I think it's important to protect blockchain technology, Bitcoin, financial literacy, hold big banks accountable for their banking fees. Um, there is a bill introduced by Cory Booker on this, and then also um, really start to address the predatory lending amongst young people and check cashing and pawn shop, predatory lending. So I think there's a little bit important. Let's start off with uh, education because you're, you're an educator. Um, I went to public schools for, for most of my life. Uh, in fact, my parents, when I was a kid, they took me out of, I was in a private Jewish school up until about fourth grade. I wasn't very happy there. My parents took me out, um, and they wanted me to go to a public school because they wanted me to be around uh, people from every sort of ethnic background. You know, they're they're rational. They're both immigrants. Their rationale was like, you look, you're going to need to know how to associate with African Americans and Mexican kids and Asian kids, and because you're going to be dealing with that in the real world. And so, I really credit them for that. Um, the the public school system, though, especially I think in the LAUSD has a lot of a lot of issues. I think especially with the pandemic, it really exacerbated some of these problems. And you saw, and I think this just made so many people irate, uh, Democrat, Republican, whatever, where you had like the L.A. boss, Cicely Cruz, who was basically advocating for teachers just to stay on Zoom for four hours a day. Uh, she called reopening the schools racist into a, in a L.A. magazine article. She um, Then she taunted parents and said, oh, well, you know, you could recall the governor, but you can't recall me. Um, and this is this isn't a state. First of all, I mean, it's an asinine comment. The the kids who are hurt the most are the poor kids, who are disproportionately African American and Latino in, in L.A. County. Um, you know, I going up in school in, in L.A. I saw you know a lot of these kids. We had a lot of kids come in uh, busting from South Central, and as it is, a lot of them didn't have structure in their own homes, and let alone you know now they have to use Zoom, and you know we could get into the whole resource issue there as well with the high speed internet connection, all that. Um, so anyway, so I mean, California is what I think it's like 48th in science, 49th in math. Uh, obviously, you're going to be working on national issues, but I, I know that you have a, a certain focus and an interest in also working with local leaders here. Another another example was what happened recently in Chicago, where these these teachers, these teacher unions, you know, after receiving what, like a billion dollars in Chicago, they wanted to uh, stay out and, and and not teach for another couple of weeks, and they got into a fight with Larry, Lori Lightfoot over there. How do we solve these problems? I mean, what's what's wrong with our education system that we have we have to be beholden to people not wanting to teach our kids? Because there are there are good teachers out there. There are also some really bad ones, and then there's also some politics involved where the kids aren't being put first. And again, this this disproportionately hurts the poorest kids. I there's a lot there, so I'm gonna uh, try my best to to hit all the things that you covered. Um, I personally did not hear those comments. I don't want to speak to them, but I'm just gonna base this off my experience. Being a teacher, teaching in Zoom, and what that's been like for my students and for myself and colleagues. So, one, I think that teachers need work really hard. And it is very hard to teach a kindergartner, for example, on Zoom or a first grader on Zoom to read, right? So, it is in the best interest of the kids to be in classrooms. I have always been for that because I am a hands on based type of teacher. I do experiments and projects, and I know that that's how kids learn best. Right. And then also not every kid has the devices, the Internet access, as you, as you mentioned. And so to me, I feel like that was that could have been something that could have been legislated to making sure every kid had access to a device. You know, you had kids in a household 
where um, they're sharing the internet or they're sharing the device and the teachers have different schedules. It was really, it was really hard to put those schedules together. Like, especially if you have siblings at the school, it's, it's, it's a very hard thing to do. And I think trying to villainize teachers is, is not okay. I absolutely stand with teachers because we put other people's kids before ourselves. We are very invested. Most teachers are invested. Not every teacher is invested, but I would say almost every single teacher I know cares very deeply about this. And I think what they should have done was just make sure safety protocols are in place um, and make sure that it's a safe learning and environment. The teachers have the resources in which they need to be able to educate. And I think we could have gotten the kids back into school sooner. That's my personal opinion. So um, I think that we were in a time where I, I don't agree with um, attacking teachers because we work in concert with parents. I'm just, I'm just trying to like really paint this picture. We need parents to support us on Zoom and we need to support the parents in their circumstances. There are parents that could not leave their kid at home. They lost their job over it. And so I just I just really want to make sure that we're understanding the position teachers are in and we're not trying to politicize this, but we, we do have to make sure teachers are safe and that they have what they need to teach. I think that's just that should be a, a, a given. Um, in terms of Chicago, I am familiar with the story. I just listened to like an, um, a New York Times podcast. They had put like like different perspectives, and everyone had a different perspective. I have always been probing on campus. That is me. That is my personal choice because I do again think kids should uh, be in classrooms. Um, I'm very concerned with the 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 impact it's going to have. And I and it, yes, it did impact low income students, but it all it impacted all kids. From a social standpoint, too, like, you know, like recess is very important, you know, being able to communicate is very important, having those interactions, all of that stuff is a part of a child's development. And so I think it's all kids, not just kids like that are located. I think it's just different. And then the other piece that doesn't really get talked about is the like the lack of abuse that went unreported. Like, so teachers were mandated reporters. So when there's, when we see something, we have to report that. And so there was a lot of that that went unreported. I'm sure that we saw an increase in um, suicide attempts. We saw an increase in cutting, which is another reason why I'm for kids being back in school. Um, and at the time, the data was showing that kids were not getting uh, COVID at the way that the way at the same rate as adults so that's another reason why but i i will i i do support teachers and um we've made some major sacrifices and teaching from home is a nightmare and it, there needs to be empathy for our position as well yeah no, I, I agree i mean i i think that just coming from my standpoint it's just frustrating to watch and i obviously you know i mean there's not i don't know if there's a more important job in society than uh, the job of educating children, especially in this uh, global competitive space that we're in, where we're competing with China and Russia and stuff. And, it also makes the, the case for why we have to modernize our education system to compensate for this achievement gap that just had a dynamite thrown into it that completely widened it. So I think that we need, like when I say modernize, I think we need to really invest in hands-on materials for teachers so they can they can have lesson plan, but be able to do the hands-on activities projects. I think that we need to provide resources for field trip opportunities so kids can have those those experiences, especially because we've been locked down for so long. I think that also makes a difference. We need to just, in general, modernize our curriculum with financial literacy, life skill courses, like bring back co-economics, robotics, uh, woodshop, 
things of that nature. We need to make sure that uh, we're updated our math curriculum. So when kids are exiting, when they graduate, they're not going right into remediation. We already have a problem with remedial classes when kids graduate, which costs kids million, collectively millions of dollars. So I think we have to just now take a look at our education system and ask, how can we make this better? What can we do? Because if we're going to do it, this is the time to do it. That, that's crucial. I'm glad you mentioned all those things too, because I, they were gone by the time I was in high school. The um, you know, woodshop and all, all that home economics, all that stuff. And uh, I remember my, my PE teacher who I was, I was close with, he said, you know, this, this administration or whatever they allow you to do, they, they just want everybody to go to college as if that's the only route. And we know that there's so many other uh, positions that a lot of these kids, first of all, there's, there's a huge need for them. We're seeing it now with the supply chain crisis. Um, and there's a huge need for a lot of these different positions. And a lot of kids aren't suited for college. That's fine. You can make way more money doing other stuff too. You know, and, and we need to get out of this mindset of, you know, one size fits all education and to invite these kids and expose them to other different professions and skills and things of that nature. Like electricians, plumbers, um, dental assistants, they're making great money. And that and we and so that's why we can't undervalue the net benefit of our trade schools. And also too, data just came out that 50% of kids that when they got their four-year degree don't even use it in the field in which they right. intended. Therefore, they go back and get a certificate. They go back and get another degree, which costs more money and time and increases their debt. So I love that you just said that. Absolutely. And, you know, I, I graduated high school. I went to an excellent university, uh, finished in a couple of years. And I came out. I Did I know truly what the interest rate was? I mean, I guess in general, but definitely not after high school. You know, did I know what um, the, the, the true um, cost of, like, credit card interest rates, APR, and all that? I didn't know that. You know, uh, there's so much. I remember my, my first, um, I took a business class in community college when I was in high school over at, uh, at Pierce. And there was one assignment we had, it was Business 101, and one assignment we had was we all picked three stocks. Um, and and at the end, you know, the the, the Whoever performed the best at the end got like, you know, like a prize. And it's like, that's so, that was such a cool experience. So we're all like competing against each other. It made learning fun. We learned about like price earnings ratios and we learned about, you know, what revenue means and what debt means and all that. And it's like, why are they teaching that in, in high school, like a senior year? Right? <laughs> exactly. And, and then you can appreciate this. So a couple, so the thick of the pandemic, like when it first started that fall semester, um, I was teaching my students the stock market. And then a couple weeks later, the game stopped situation happened do you remember the game stuff with the kids on reddit how they organized yeah do you remember that okay that to me was like the biggest indication that that kids want to learn about finance that they're interested in it and it was such a, an iconic teachable moment for me and the fact that i was able to connect that and i think you're right i think when you teach things like finance and money and entrepreneurship kids can connect it to the real world they're inspired by it. Like when we would, when they would get to open their stock portfolios, they would get so excited to see how's Abercrombie doing, how's this stock doing, and then and, and it was really so engaging and it reduced behavior problems, it increased in t like their attention span, it inspired them to want to look more deeply at the mathematics behind it. They were able to learn how to make graphs with more interest and enthusiasm, like charting like the line graph. So I love that you um, plug that because it is really, really important. I mean, there's so many reforms we can make like that to really teach these kids like real world experience. Even like, you know, you still have to write a check here and there. You know, like, they didn't teach me that either, right? Um, so I think there's a lot of 
a lot of things we can do there, and it looks like you know you, you're really on top of that. And I hope that you can encourage others to do the same. Uh, how did you how did you sort of uh, get exposed to Bitcoin to begin with? Um, Eric Swalwell and Andrew Yang both ran on Pro Crypto. Um, they had that a part of their platforms when they were running for president. And I thought that was like, oh, that's interesting that they chose to put that on their platform. And then when I was deciding to run, um, kids actually asked me to put it on my platform. And I wasn't sure if I was able to do that because of the FEC regulations. I've never, I've never done this before. So I'm not, I wasn't sure of the, like the legality aspects of it because there's so many rules and regulations. And then, um, so I kind of like, no, we're not going to accept Bitcoin. Um, because I just don't know how it works on with campaign finance. And then um, Brad Sherman had a hearing, very anti-Bitcoin, anti-crypto, wanting to ban it, regulate it literally to death. And the crypto community, the Bitcoin community reached out to me and asked me my stance. And I said, well, I'm not for banning Bitcoin. What? Why would Brad be for that? And out of all the things they've working on in Congress, like, why is that a priority? You know, I didn't, I couldn't wrap my mind around that. And so we went back and looked at the, um, the legalities of it, the FBC compliance. And we realized that we could absolutely accept Bitcoin. And we just had to account, do the accounting aspect of it a very specific way, which we're happy to do because I think it is important to promote innovation. I think it is important to find different ways to fundraise for a campaign so you can get the most out of your percentage. Like for example, through Act Blue, 4% of a contribution we lose, but through the Lightning Network, it's only 1%. So that really allows a teacher like me to go up against a 25 year incumbent, right? So it really is a, like, Awesome. <laughs> and then I also think that like what we said earlier, it is the jobs of the future. I think it's going to be as big as the internet. And so that's kind of how and why I support it. But I also hold Bitcoin. Yeah, no, that's, that's great. The, uh, we, and we need people like that in Congress who are, especially I think one of, one of the reasons is it's also generational. I mean, we have so many uh, 75 and 80 year olds in Congress and in positions of power. Uh, including our last two presidents, that I think it's really time that we, we have more young people, more millennials and uh, com coming into the force and understanding this thing because this is going to take off with or without us. So might as well be with us. Might as well be with American backing. And that's the other thing that I fear is that something like we touched on something that's super innovative and it would be a shame if we did not keep it in the United States. And, and I don't know if people are aware, but like this was the same thing that happened with the Internet. You know, and there was a lot of skepticism around the internet and the advancement of it. And now look where we are today. How do you feel about term limits? I am for term limits, a hundred percent. I think that we need to make sure that we prevent, like, prevent corruption. That people cannot just go term after term, do nothing, and just think that that seats theirs. And I think it allows for new ideas, new voices to be offered and presented. I think what I'm I'm playing around with is either uh, we could do four or three four year terms, so that's twelve years, and and then if we did it that way, then you won't have to worry about the reelection every two years. Right now, I think it's like members of Congress every two years, and Senate it's like six years. So at least you can be you can sit in that seat for a little bit longer, not have to worry about reelections. So you can really try to dig your heels in and get things passed and done, and then just run for a reelection three times total. And then the Senate seat, it could be you know maybe three six year terms. So once you leave Congress, then you go for a Senate or be a part of the, the administration or something. But I don't think that anyone should die on that seat. Like Grassley from Iowa, by the time he, like he 
finishes his next term, he's going to be 99 years old. 99 not, years old. It's unbelievable. Well, how does he know anything about what's what's going on in the real world at 99? You know, like, especially when you've been in, in Washington, D.C. for what, like 40 years or something? It's like you're so disconnected from what's going on to the for, for your constituents the rest of the country. And I think the uh, the term limits really just, um, uh, this could be a real bipartisan thing. And I, I hope that as, as the younger generations take more and more power in Congress on both the left and the right and the independents that we can get. Because if you see the polls, it's like 90% of, 70-90% of uh, Americans support term limits. And uh, Americans, small, everyday people. Yeah, Americans yeah. and everyday people support it, but the reason why politicians don't support it is because it's a career for them. And see, yeah. for me, it's like, I want, I genuinely want to make a difference. I genuinely care about these things. And if I only did five to six terms or something, I can go back to being a teacher and be completely content because I love being a teacher. I love teaching, right? So this is not like I have no other aspirations other than just like really fighting for these things. Um, I'm in a place in my life where I can run for office, so I'm choosing to do that. But that, that's the problem that I have with these people is that it's about them. It's not about the, the, the people that they're supposed to be representing. And you didn't even talk about this. I think it's important coupled with this is where politicians get their money. That also indicates who they're trying to represent. I mean, 12 years is enough. The, the, our country was founded based on this idea of citizen representatives. You'd go, you'd serve your country for a few years, and you'd come back and you'd be a farmer or whatever. That's how our country was structured. And, you know, to have people in office for 40 years, 50 years, staying into their 80s and 90s. I mean, this is not how it's supposed to work. This is why you have corruption. This is why you have out-of-touch people. Um, and I, I really hope that... Again, this has to be a bipartisan thing that people really push for this. And I think if and when you're elected and you make this a center point of, of your tenure, I think it would really serve you. And so many people want this. The other thing is uh, I saw John Ossoff. And here's another bipartisan thing. So he's a Democrat. John Ossoff sponsored a bill limiting the ability of people in Congress to trade individual stocks, which I think is something that we can all pretty much agree on. The fact that you can you would, you have this essentially insider information uh, of, of these big companies, uh, and then you can front run that by placing trades. I think is absolutely ridiculous. So what do you feel about that? I am happily on the record saying that if that were to pass the Senate, I would absolutely support in the House, and or I'm happy to write a similar bill in, and introduce it through the House and let it get passed into the Senate. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think I think it's excellent. Question on the homelessness issue in California. What do you see as the solutions to that? So I have a few. I think we need to um, address the foster care system and, re and, and fix that. I think we need massive reform. I think that we need to really look closely at a universal basic income. And so I know within the crypto Bitcoin space, there's like this, this, this uh, notion of like printing money, but we went through the federal budget and we found that there is a way to pay for it without um, printing any money. And that means that what we would do is we would get rid of the current federal um, programs that are proving not to be successful and replace it with a, uh, either five to $750 universal basic income. And then that would address the fact that when people, that uh, we have most, a lot of 75% uh, of people, the paycheck to paycheck, and one, and they're a bill away from financial ruin, which puts them into poverty. And so that would solve that. It would prevent problems. I'm kind of coming from the space of we need to not just throw money at it, band-aids at it, but we really have to, to fix the systems 
of where it's coming from. And if the current systems in place, the social safety nets are not pulling people out of poverty, then we need to try something different. And then also, I think if we fix our education system and not, again, promote trade schools, different occupations, I think that would be advantageous. With respect to the universal basic income, I'm, I'm still sort of undecided on how I feel about that myself. Would, would it be a situation where if we were able to do it, that we could get rid of a lot of the sort of social welfare state bureaucracy and just give money directly to the people? Right. That's what people don't realize is that we're spending millions and millions of dollars just on the administration aspect of it. But if you, and, and that's what comes with all the programs, but if we got rid of all of that, went to a different way of having a, a different social safety. I would say, think it's a social safety net without holes in it. Then you just give everybody direct cash. They do with it what they want to do with it. And then, the, and because everyone's situation is very differently. And every single UBI child, every UBI child has proven time and time again to pull people out of poverty. The child tax credit reduced child poverty by, by half. Even when I spoke with Jack Dorsey, we were in agreement that UBI is a solution. He has given $5 million to um, a UBI pilot, right? So there is a space for um, that. And then if you have like something like Bitcoin, a different way of, you know, uh, you're uh, manipulating, not manipulating, but a way of a different approach to finance. I think that is where we can start to see people flourish, live the dignity, have sovereignty over their lives. Is there a way to balance the UBI with, uh, I think a lot of people's concern is that you're going to incentivize people to be slackers and play video game. And Is there a way, though, to like give people money, but then maybe verify that maybe they're volunteering for charity or maybe they're doing something productive? No. Then, then you're going back into the bureaucracy and like all the administrative fees. I'm like this. This is how I feel. If we give people a really solid education, we teach work ethic, and when they graduate, then at 18 they get a universal basic income. No matter what, they have their basic needs met. They can, they, and it's not enough money to live off of. It's enough to ensure that your basic needs are met and or you have money in case of an emergency and you can invest it however you choose it gives real um it's actually a very conservative idea it was it's, it's done in alaska and it's wildly popular so it, just, it allows that sense of freedom if someone decides that they want to live in their mom's bedroom then that's their choice but most people don't have those kind of aspirations I think most people would use it for to benefit, like for childcare, prescription drugs. Hopefully, we can get those down. Um, putting their kids in after-school programs, attire, maybe. I think most people will honestly do things that will better their lives. That's that's what the data shows. I'm a person. I look at the data. There's the data is also they did one in Canada that was specifically given to people that are experiencing homelessness. And they saw drug use go down, alcohol use go down, depression go down, and they were able to uh, afford clothing, to go get a job, and things of that nature. I think we, I think we have to really stop assuming the worst and what maybe that one or two percent of people might do, and really start to look at what ninety-eight percent of people are going to do with that money. If you got six hundred dollars a month, what are you going to do with it? What would you personally uh, do with it? I'll put on Bitcoin. That's your choice. So yeah, that's your right. choice. Would yeah. you? Would you? Would you like get rid of your job? 
Well, if you think that you can live off, like most people know that that's not practical, especially yeah. in our district. Like it's not, that's not reasonable. And also going back to foster care, when these kids age out of the foster care system, hi, when these kids age out of the foster care system, they, they're left with a trash bag and their little bit of belongings. They have nothing. At least if we can make sure when they age out, they have a government issue ID, birth certificate, social security, and we can set them up with a bank account, a Bitcoin wallet, and then they can they can not fall into poverty and make sure that they have a pathway to either a trade school, a job, or college. I think that's the way we have to go. But we, I, I really think it is uh, something that should be on the table. I think people should really do their due diligence and research the different trials, and they'll see there's a lot to gain from it. And also, the census just revealed that the um, the stimulus checks saved 11.5 million people from falling into poverty during the pandemic. So it's not the thousand dollars that Andrew was proposing. We think that six hundred dollars, six. I'm sorry, five to seven hundred and fifty in that range, because the unexpected bill that pulls people into poverty is five hundred dollars. Yeah, no, I definitely think that there, it's a reasonable debate that we need to have. And you're getting rid of the other programs. I think people have to understand. Like, there's a lot of government programs that are not working, and people are selling food stamps for cash so they can pay for a tire or childcare, whatever their situations. I just want to remind people that we're just getting rid of the programs that are not working and trying something different. So that <laughs> yeah, that's important. And also, you know, you didn't mention it, but I'm sure you're aware. You know, with automation and all sorts of disruptions are going to be happening, especially this decade. Um, that there needs to be some, there needs to be a solution for that, you know, uh, to, to hold people over until, until you know, we, we figure out where everything's going. And if someone doesn't like the idea of a universal basic income, I want to be very clear about who I am and how I think. If you're saying that this is not a good solution to end poverty, provide me with one that will. That that because that, that's how badly I want to solve it. So if you think that this is not a good idea. When kids age out of the foster care system, that we give them a little bit of money, make sure that they're on the pathway, that we put money in the hands of people. And it's, give me an alternative solution. And then, because I'm like this, I'll take the best idea. But this is the best idea I've seen out right now and has data to back it up. So if someone could provide a better solution to addressing um, poverty, and then I'm all I'm all ears. I was wondering if you have any sort of strong views on foreign policy, if you thought about that at all. Uh, particularly with a lot of the people in your congressional district uh, are going to be very uh, concerned about Israel. They're going to be very uh, pro-Israel. Uh, it's one of the largest Jewish constituencies in the country. Uh, you, you also have one of the largest Iranian-American constituencies, so they're going to be very anti-Iran, essentially, because these are all the, the people who left that country after the theocratic takeover, like my mother. So people have very strong views on, on the Middle East, essentially Israel, pro-Israel advocacy, and, and being hard on Iran. Have you, have you sort of uh, thought through these things? I have. Um, I have. I've been endorsed by two rabbis. I'm really proud to say that. We've um, announced one of our um, endorsements, but I have, a, I have two. And um, I have met with them, um, one in particular, and we are working through these, this conversation. Am I an expert on foreign policy? No, that is not my strength. I'm very clear about this. Like I know what I don't know. And so I have made it my business to really educate myself on it. And so that's why I have met with him on two different occasions, and we have another meeting coming up um, in, in the second week of February, I want to say. And so to really make sure I have a, a, a deep understanding. But as of now, I am um, I am really trying to make sure that I 
acquire the information and the knowledge and to make informed decisions. But that's also why you have a community too, right? So if these are important votes are coming up. Then you have a town hall and you ask your constituents what they think, what they care about, and you really get a sense of it. I think currently people have only truthfully, I mean, honest, have talked to me about the local economy, education, and the increase in homelessness in the district. That just seems to be what people are really focused on right now. Inflation is a huge topic right now. Um, but I, so to answer your question, that's the answer. And I don't desire to be on the Foreign Affairs Committee. That's Brad, Sher Brad Sherman currently sits on the Foreign Affairs Committee. I'm not seeking to sit on that committee. Okay. And what are your views on inflation? What problem we have with inflation yeah. right now? I have issues with it. I think the gas prices are incredibly high. Like, we looked back at it. There was a... I don't know if you're aware, but there was a bill through our state legislature that came out in 2008 that they voted on to add 80 cent tax on the current price of gas, which is why we are we hit the hardest. And I think those are the things that we as elected officials, hopefully community elected officials, have to really educate our constituents on. Because I think if people knew that that bill was going to be voted on, they would probably have reached out to their, their local representative on, on that. And so I think that the local economy and the inflation is a huge issue. I think that the supply chain demand needs to be a priority of the Biden administration and to really, really address this. Um, it's not feasible for everyday working families. I mean, people are being hit very hard right now. And even me, like someone that is a teacher, I don't make a lot of money and I'm feeling it myself. So I have great empathy for it. And that's another reason why I'm running for Congress is to raise awareness on why we're paying more than other states and that the state tax, we have to really, really try to ease this up a little bit on, on our um, community. It's, it's, it's too much. Absolutely. Do you agree? No, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's such a, inflation is such a uh, regressive tax that it really hurts the the most vulnerable people, and it's something we need to really take seriously. And it's why people are leaving our districts. Um, yeah, we're, we're seeing a lot of people leave because it's so expensive to live. You can't buy a house out here. It's really, it's really unfortunate. And so, um, I hope that this is a wake up call for elected officials to really do their due diligence and make sure that they're passing and first introducing really good policy voting on really good policy and making sure that constituents understand what's in these bills thoroughly. And uh, not spending you know, tens or trillions of dollars. You know, we have to really take this seriously because the problem with inflation is once it gets going, it can sometimes spiral out of control uh, beyond anybody's imagination. So, And that's why people are turning to Bitcoin and cryptocurrency. Eric Rhodes, thank you so much. I know you have to head down in a couple minutes. Can you tell people where to find you? So learn more about the platform at ericaforcongress.com, A-A-R-I-K-A, 4-F-O-R, Congress, and everything's there. And I appreciate you bringing me on and using your platform to have these important conversations about foster care reform and inflation and education. I really, I really appreciate that. I think it's really important, especially people who are regionally minded, all sides of the political spectrum, being able to talk about things and and about the common sense things that don't have to be political. I, I hope that really changes. I think a lot of people are, are eager to see that change. So thank, thank you so much for coming on. I'll put the, the link to that in the podcast. Thank you. If you enjoyed our show, please click subscribe to stay up to date with our YouTube channel and podcast and give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts so that we can keep delivering guys some great content. Thanks for listening and we will be back next week. 
We're going to talk about the issues that really matter. Our country, our economy, the Fed, QE, GDP, BTC, NFTs, AOC, the CCP, Cardi B, Ow. Yeezy, Yellow Socks, Iran, Joe Biden's dementia, Come on, man. and probably sex robots. We stand for a free and open debate and exchange of ideas. And if you disagree with anything we talk about, you are a racist and no better than Hitler. What? Let's get started.